in this in this particular module or section of the module, um, we're going to talk about compartment syndrome, gait disturbances, and osteomyelitis. I did not review septic arthritis or spinal fusion because again, those portions of the reading are relatively short. Um, if you have any questions about them, please feel free to go ahead and ask. So let's talk about um, compartment syndrome. Now, essentially, this is a pressure-related condition in which there's either swelling or fluid that's filling a space, causing compression on nerves and blood supply. Um, and this leads to an inadequate blood flow to the capillaries, causes decreased perfusion, um, can ultimately um, impair metabolic demands, causing a lactate buildup. And then, you know, worst case scenario, there's muscle and nerve damage that, that is a result. Presentation, usually the pain is disproportionate to the injury. Patients generally refuse to move it. There's usually some form of an injury to that site, whether it be a broken bone, whether it be a cast applied. Um, for patients in the abdomen, there could be um, significant buildup of ascites. Uh, I've seen multitude of different types of uh, compartment syndromes <clears throat> that, are, um, that present. But whenever you're doing your assessment, you wanna look and evaluate your three Ps, and that's pain, pallor, and pulselessness. And in the textbook, they also talk about looking at your three A's, which is anxiety, agitation, and analgesic requirements. So if you have any of these combinations here, this should be something that you should be looking into. And if you have any injury that where the skin looks taut or tight, you definitely want to evaluate for um, uh, compartment syndrome. Or if you have someone that has an abdomen that's bright and shiny um, or taut and shiny, you definitely want to make sure you evaluate that a little bit further. Now, your plan is to remove or relieve the pressure. So if it's a cast that's causing the compartment syndrome, the cast would need to be removed. If it's um, an extremity that's swollen due to, say, anasarca, or if it's an ascites, you're going to have to go in and relieve that pressure. So for some patients, that may mean they need a fasciotomy. And then there's a lot of times we do that for our burn patients where they get this... Uh, uh, burning burns burn injuries to the skin and then that that tissue becomes very tight and not elastic and doesn't stretch very well and then there's pressure buildup underneath and they'll have to go in and do fasciotomies to keep the um, the blood flow and, and and nerve supply intact and you want to go in and improve the blood flow as well so you want to make sure they have adequate um, uh, volume resuscitation as well as <clears throat> proper intervention that's going to uh, relieve that pressure. We can measure compartment pressure. So there's, an <clears throat> there's a couple of different ways of doing this. Um, often, it's usually generally invasive. Um, so for some of our patients, like say for example, if it's an ascites, they may go ahead and put in um, a pressure manometer on the Foley so that we could measure the pressure that's in the bladder, which should correlate with what the pressure is in the, um, in the peritoneal space. Um, but I've also seen them do needle um, insertions into certain tissue to assess for compartment syndrome. They're able to measure the pressure that way, too. And then the textbook um, mentions that any pressure greater than 30 millimeters of mercury should, should be suggestive of compartment syndrome and should be treated as such. Next, we'll move on to hip dysplasia. And this, this is uh, essentially a subluxation of the femoral head within the hip joint. Um, it's, it's more common in females, and they believe that there might be some hormone um, induced um, relationship to this. Um, we do know that there are some risk factors such as breech presentation, multiple gestations, first pregnancy, oligohydramniosis, as well as family history. Um, if you guys go back to your 
uh, health assessment course. We talked, we should have talked about um, the Barlow and Ortolani, Ortolani maneuvers. And this is where you actually would check for congenital hip dysplasia. This exam is definitely um, very helpful for children under the age of six months. Um, another sign for presentation could, and this is where, you know, the, I have a nice picture here off to the side for the Barlow and the Ortolanis, where you're actually going to bring the hips in, move them up and out, and you're going to be listening for that click, um, as well as the Ortolani, where you're going to actually be rotating, externally rotating the, um, the extremity outward. Uh, Glazen sign or gal, gale azi sign. Um, and that's a different in the, the length of the femur. Um, so if you measure the hips, um, when they're flexed at a 90 degree angle, um, there's going to be a, a difference in the, the length. These children can also have an asymmetrical skin fold, although that's not always a hundred percent diagnostic. Um, but you do want to assess for that. And then in older children, one of the biggest things you'll notice is that they'll have this waddling gait. So our um, diagnostic studies of choice would be ultrasound, um, which is the study of choice. You can also do uh, films to identify to see if the if, if the the femoral head the femoral head is subluxed. Um, to treat these patients, often it's a pavlic pavlic harness, um, <clears throat> which can reduce up to eighty percent of um, uh, hip subluxations, um, but they can develop an avascular necrosis. Um, so these children do definitely need to be monitored. The other option. Um, for these children, um, generally the children that are older than six months of age, they may get a, a, a closed reduction of the dysplasia and then placed in a hip spica cast for about six to 12 weeks. Um, discitis is the next um, disorder we'll talk about. And this is generally an inflammation of the an intervertebral space. It's most often seen in children under five years of age. Um, it's generally associated with osteomyelitis. So if you have someone that has an osteomyelitis in this area, you might also want to evaluate them for discitis. We see this commonly with um, staph aureus, but you can also see it with these other organisms listed, such as Kingella, group A strep, or E. coli. They come in generally with their, their major complaint is going to be back pain, which worsens with flexion. Um, they may also have fever fatigue, uh, noticeable limp. Um, they may hold themselves in a straight, rigid position because their back is so uncomfortable. And some of our older children will complain of abdominal pain. So when we do our evaluation, again, anyone that has an inflammatory process or suspected inflammatory process, we're going to do a CBC with a diff. We're going to check blood and fluid cultures. Our CRP and ESR are going to be our inflammatory markers as well. And because they have an, a known uh, joint or bony process that's involved, Films of some sort are going to be involved. So we'll do radiographs of um, the spinal column or in the area of which, you know, they're, they're, the major complaint is. We often can do bone scan, which may highlight some of those areas of inflammation. Um, but the most, some of the more helpful studies may be an MRI and even ultrasound because ultrasound can help identify fluid collections. And that's the one key thing with ultrasound that's very helpful. So if there's a loculated area of, of fluid, it's going to pick that up nice and easily. When we look at our treatment plans, we want to give them activity restriction. We definitely want to treat their pain. Um, we may need to immobilize them to help control some of that pain and to help them get through that process so they're not re-aggravating that injury. And often we'll give them antibiotic therapy. Um, um, most often, vancomycin is going to be your drug of choice for if there's concerns for MRSA. Um, and then we're going to give them a, pr a pretty decent-sized dose of 40 to 60 milligrams per kilo over a 24-hour period divided by um, in six-hour increments. 
And if we feel that there's some type of bone involvement, often we have to make sure that we, when we check our levels, we'll do higher dosing of it. And then if there's concern for MSSA, nafcillin or oxacillin are, are other drugs of choice. Now, often these, these types of patients will probably require some type of intravenous line, whether that be a PICC line or central line, and may require um, uh, an, extended dose, an extended therapy dose to make sure that we treat the, the uh, disorder appropriately. Next, we have leg calf Perth's disease. Um, this is a temporary loss of blood supply to the proximal femoral epiphysis. Um, and this is usually associated with some type of clotting abnormality. And uh, the book t- identifies both protein C, protein S deficiencies, as well as factor V Leiden mutations. And it does have a four-stage um, disease process. You know, Initially, they'll have their ischemic event. Then they develop this fragmentation where you get deformities or fractures because of that ischemia. Then the bone goes to this healing stage or reossification stage, and then there's remodeling. Depending on how um, severe the initial injury is or the, the, the initial presentation is, they may need to go in and do some significant treatment for those um, based on the deformity and fracture. They will present to you with a persistent pain on the affected side. They may start at the hip, and it, the pain may start at the hip and then radiate down to the thigh or knee, and that's kind of important with this um, this particular disorder because they, they generally talk about this radiation to the thigh and the knee. It's more of a chronic pain. They do have this, um, this limp, which is an abductor lurch or an, a, an antalgic gait. Um, they often have a limited internal rotation and abduction on your physical exam. Again, as I mentioned earlier, we want to do a full workup on them. So we'll do a CBC, CRP, blood culture, looking for any type of infectious or inflammatory process. We may also want to look at their thyroid and insulin-like growth factors because this may this is a, one of the things that is common with patients that have like calf Perth disease. Um, our, radio, our radiographs um, will actually show... Um, We'll want them to be in a leg frog, a frog leg position to look at both the anterior and posterior views to see if there's any type of um, malalignment or dislocation of that um, epiphysis, uh, the uh, the femoral epiphysis. Bone scan again can look for any type of can show up or highlight any type of inflammatory areas, as well as MRI. Your management's gonna. Um, it depends on the involvement of the injury. Um, our goal is to keep that femoral head seated in the acetabulum. We're going to promote good range of motion, um, physical therapy, and bracing. And in some of our more severe cases, they may require surgical intervention. Next, we have slip capital, capital femoral epiphysis, or SCAFI. Um, this is a separation of the growth plate in the proximal femoral head. The epiphyseal, uh, the epiphysis slips posteriorly and can progress to a complete dislocation. Um, at the risk of, a, um, they are at risk for avascular necrosis due to this poor blood supply. So, if it's untreated, it can lead to severe pain and a limp. Um, this is a condition that's often associated with obesity. So, kids that are obese that come in with complaining of of this hip or leg pain, this would be one of the diagnoses I would put higher up on my diagnosis, uh, my differential list. And it may be linked to a rapid growth. So if you have someone that complains of, you know, hey, this, you know, this kid's grown pretty bit, you know, quite a bit in a very short period of time, and they're a little bit overweight, again, move this up on your differential list. Some of the major symptoms that you'll see on um, presentation will be acute or chronic hip, thigh, or knee pain. 
They have limited internal rotation and obligated external rotation and shortening of the leg in the Trendelenburg position. Again, when we're doing our diagnostic studies, we'll look at our radiographs. Um, we'll again, put them in that frog leg view. Um, posterior displacement of the femoral epiphysis can be seen in that lateral view. And CT and MRI are both very helpful in making a diagnosis. When we do our um, treatment plan, um, often these patients may require percutaneous pinning and screw fixation, or they may need an open osteotomy and internal fixation. Next, we have toxic synovitis. Um, this is an inflammation of the large joint spaces. This may be associated with viral process, trauma, allergic reaction, or arthritis of the hip joint. Their presentation usually um, includes pain to the affected joint, limping, refusal to bear weight, um, limited hip motion and abduction, and internal rotation. Our diagnostic tools, again, are going to be our CRP, C CBC, ESR. We're going to do, again, some more films of the joints. Here we can actually collect some fluid um, and send it off for cell count and uh, cultures and to identify if there's some type of infectious process going on, as well as an MRI or bone scan. And then the plan for these patients generally is, is you know, um, limiting their activity, giving them adequate rest, and the utilization of uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications are helpful. Next, we have osteomyelitis, which is an infection of the bone. Um, here we have a bone, uh, blood-borne organism, which is the most common seeding. Next, we have osteomyelitis. This is an infection of the bone. And in children, the most common cause of osteomyelitis is a blood-borne organism. So here we have a bacteria infection that seeds and basically it provides seeding into the, into the bone, um, resulting from an, another... Next, we're going to talk about osteomyelitis, and this is essentially an infection of the bone. Um, and in children, the most common cause is blood-borne organisms. So here we have someone who has an infection, and that infection um, bacteria that's in the blood then starts to seed into the bone. Um, and this is problematic because this can lead to bone necrosis and if it's not properly treated. So their presentation is going to be most helpful with a history. So you want and you want to know if they have any recent injuries, infection, if they they're recovering from chickenpox, if they've had a recent otitis media, upper respiratory infection, and they're going to present with uh, limited use of that um, affected limb. They may have fever, chills, and vomiting, so they may still look pretty uh, toxic, or they may still look pretty sick. Infants may, you know, again with that tall tail sign of poor feeding and changing in their sleep habits, and a little bit of irritability uh, may also be. Um, a key element in the history taking. And then at the site, usually there's, you know, all those things that you're looking for as far as, you know, uh, site infections. So you have tenderness, edema, erythema, it's warm to the touch, they have decreased uh, range of motion, and they have a limp. Again, we're going to do that, that, that uh, workup of CBC, ESR, CRP, blood cultures, radiographs, MRI. Uh, and it's usually the imaging of choice for focal symptoms. And then CT scan may help be helpful in identifying any type of abscesses. And again, ultrasound can help detect soft tissue issues as well as subperiostal fluid collections. Again, our antibiotics uh, will have our staph aureus will be covered by oxacillin or first uh, generation cephalosporin, such as uh, cefazolin. If there's concern or we've cultured up uh, MRSA, we're going to use vancomycin. And one of the key things with osteomyelitis and using vancomycin, normally when we when we prescribe vancomycin, we shoot for for empiric um, delivery of vancomycin. We usually want that dose that um, the the trough to come back between 10 to 15. 
And for treatment dose, usually we want the trough to come back around uh, 15 to 20. But when we have patients that have um, significant or a fair amount of bone involvement, they may push those trough levels a little bit higher, like say 20 to 22, to make sure that we get good bone penetration because these patients generally need uh, a lengthy um, antibiotic dose. Um, so it may be several weeks um, on these antibiotics. Often they get, they'll need a pick line because uh, they'll want these, these antibiotics to be given intravenously. And we want to make sure that we treat it completely and not terminate the therapy prior to, to treating the infection. Our neonates, they may opt to give them a third-generation cephalosporin, such as cefotaxime, because that offers good broad-spectrum coverage and definitely is going to cover for uh, group B uh, strep, as well as enteric gram-negative bacilli. All right, so that's the end of this presentation. Again, it was nice and short. I definitely want you guys to do a deep review of your toxicology, the thermal injuries, um, as well as the emergency room management. I want to make sure you guys understand the nomograms for anticholinergic symptoms as well as cholinergic symptoms with your toxicologies, um, understanding um, how to do your Parkland formula for your burn patients and how to assess for body surface area for, for burns um, on the pediatric patient. I will, I will put together a more in-depth, detailed um, presentation for those on that seminar, but I want you to review all that first because um, it will... Um, make that presentation go a lot smoother um, when we get there. All right. I will talk to you in a week. All right. Take care. Bye.